Why do we call Father, Father? Why do we call the Son, the Son? These are questions that are answered by the doctrine of eternal generation. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I am your host, Pastor Joshua Summer, pastor of Victory Baptist Church in Kansas City. I'm so thankful that you're here. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, please click the subscribe button down below and the bell for continued notifications. And if you would like to listen to the podcast, you can find this podcast anywhere you get podcasts. Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, you name it, we are likely there. Again, thank you for joining us. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of eternal generation today. We're going to look at scripture, history, and then a final dogmatic formulation in the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 2, article 3. The doctrine of eternal generation, as I just mentioned, is very important. In fact, it's integral to understanding what distinguishes or why we distinguish and why Scripture distinguishes between Father and Son and Spirit. Is there a real distinction, uh, or is the distinction just apparent? Uh, does modalism win at the end of the day? Modalism is, of course, the historical heresy that says that God is a single person or substance who merely manifests himself temporally as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. We would want to say as Trinitarians that God really is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the ways in which we are able to do that consistently and logically and within our dogmatic system is by the doctrine of eternal generation. The first thing I want to do and the first thing that I want to look at is I want to look at John chapter 5 verse 26. In John chapter 5 verse 26 we read, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The implication of this text is massive. That the life which the Father has in himself, what the Father is, the very principle of life in the Father, he has granted or given the Son to have that same life in himself. So the idea here is aseity. Everything that you can say about God, aseity, self-existence, immutability, impassibility, eternality, infinity, all of that can be said of the Son as well. Because the essence that is those things is communicated to the Son from the Father through eternal generation. Let's look at D.A. Carson's commentary on John chapter 5, verse 26. Uh, he says, The context of 526 describes what God alone does, yet insists that the Son does it too. This can be cast in universal terms. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also, such as back in verse 19, and thus can include things mentioned elsewhere, such as creation, or in the specifics of particular actions that only God can do, exercise final judgment, raise the dead on the last day. In such a context, the life in himself terminology of John chapter 5, verse 26, is likely referring to what is exclusively God's, namely, what we call self-existent life. Life that God has because he is God and dependent on no one and nothing. Life that is his before creation. If such life is granted to the Son, the conclusion of Augustine that this life or that this is an eternal grant is the only one that makes sense of the text. That comes from D.A. Carson's article, John 5.26, Crux Interpretum for Eternal Generation in the volume Retrieving Eternal Generation, edited by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain. 
In other words, this text is a Trinitarian text. This is a text that signifies that whatever the Father has in himself, he has also granted the Son to have in himself as well. This is the idea of eternal generation, eternal granting, eternal giving. We could also say eternal begottenness, if we're to go with the language, for example, in John chapter 1. Let's look at another text that uh, Daniel Treyer and John Gill comments on as well, but more contemporarily, uh, Daniel Treyer in uh, his book, Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll look at here in a moment. And that is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, this is a little less obvious of a eternal generation text, but it is an eternal generation text. And the reason for that is... Uh, you have the father mentioned, God and father of, so he's really a father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the implication of deity with the inscription of the title Lord to Jesus Christ. So basically you have the father and Christ who are both God, but we know they must be one God. And we also know that this Christ is of the father uh, and that the father is the father of Christ. Okay, so uh, John Gill comments on this text. In fact, he says, and the same as is the as uh, and the same is the Father of Christ, as Christ is God. In other words, what he's saying is, we're not just talking here about you know Christ's uh, human sonship. That is to say, his sonship according to his human nature, which occurs in time. We're backing up before that. We're talking about Christ as God. And he goes on, he says, as such, he is the son of God, not by creation as angels in Adam, nor by adoption as saints. We call God our father because we've been adopted through Christ and we therefore can call God our father. That's not the way in which God the son is a son, but by natural generation. He being the only begotten of the father, his own proper son, of the same nature and perfections with him and equal to him. Again, that is Gill's commentary on Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3 is a Trinitarian text. It is a text that, should we derive inference from it, should we, uh, you know, exposit it and, and conclude what its meaning is, will lead us to something like eternal generation, uh, a filial relation, we might say. Let's look at Daniel Treyer's words from Lord Jesus Christ. And thus identifying God as the Father, yet the Father of Jesus Christ as our Lord, Paul celebrates a filial relationship that entails both personal distinction and the Son's divine identity. Again, that's Daniel Treyer, Lord Jesus Christ, page 51. Celebrating a filial relationship that entails both personal distinction and the Son's divine identity. Again, Ephesians 1.3 is a text that requires something like eternal generation. Let's move on now to the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, there are basically three articles, uh, three uh, headings to the Nicene Creed that begin each with a person in the Godhead. So the first article is, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So notice you have the statement of the person, the Father Almighty, and then the works right, that are appropriated to that person. We know that even though all of the works of God are the works of the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that yet there are works which are in Scripture appropriated 
to this or that divine person based on that person's order in the uh, in the Trinity. So in this case, the Father is first; He's principal, and therefore He is. Uh, you know, the work of uh, creation is appropriated to Him. The second article begins with the Lord Jesus Christ, and in what we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Okay, so there's the eternal begottenness. God from God, light from light. What does it mean to say that, you know, all the life that is in God, the Father, has been granted to be in the Son as well? Well, that is the John 5.26 reality that the Nicene Creed is bringing out here in this second article. True God from true God, begotten, not made. So there's a difference in the formulation of this doctrine between begottenness, eternally considered, and creation. The Son wasn't created at a particular point in time. He is God, but and he is identical to the divine essence. He is God. Everything that we can say about God, we can say about the Son. Um, but he is said to be eternally begotten because he proceeds eternally from the Father. Of course, we have Article 3, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and this language is picked up from John 14 and John 15, which, when taken together, you have a sending of the Holy Spirit by both Father and Son, which, of course, references an eternal spiration of the Holy Spirit from Father and Son as well. I would like to look at uh, Gregory of Nazianzen, and uh, before I do that, I'm just going to kind of explain what I'm doing with Gregory of Nazianzen. Gregory of Nazianzen wrote a book called On God and Christ, and in this book there are several objections that he's moving through to try and clarify, uh, you know, who got, a doctrine of God and a doctrine of the Incarnation, doctrine of the Trinity as well. And so I chose three objections to look at, along with his answers to those objections, to hopefully give us an idea of how the doctrine of eternal generation was being spoken of in, you know, more ancient years. This is the fourth century that we're looking at here with uh, Gregory of Nazianzen. The first objection is this. How then can the process of beginning not involve subjection to change? And so, in other words, this objector is saying, if you say that the Son is eternally begotten, you're implying that there's some kind of change within God, and thus, by way of implication, you are denying the doctrine of divine immutability, divine unchangeableness. And of course, Gregory's answer is, because a body is not involved. In other words, that which would require change would be, you know, God being some kind of physical body that is a composition of act and potency, you know, something that extends through space. But none of that applies to God. And so when we're talking about eternal generation, we're talking about something different. Uh, we're talking, we're not talking about generation as it relates to creatures, but generation as it applies to God. And when we're speaking of generation as it applies to God, we're talking about something of a different order, change does not apply in this circumstance. And he goes on, he says, if corporeal begetting implies subjection to change, an incorporeal one must be free of it. You, he's kind of chiding his interlocutor, he says, you are incapable of misunderstanding, of understanding that one who has a distinctive fleshly birth, what other case of a virgin mother of God do you know, has a different spiritual birth, or rather, one whose being is not the same as ours, has a different way of beginning as well. And what he's saying there is, yeah, eternal 
begottenness is is real in God. But what you're failing to understand, objector, is that because God is not a creature and God is not a man, uh, God is not a biological organism or a physical organism of any kind, this generation, this begottenness, uh, doesn't apply in God the same way that it applies in creatures. Um, in fact, it's it's occurring on an entirely different order, in a different order, and we have to take that into account. And then the third objection says, Father is a designation. Um, let's see here. Actually, it's it's the second objection, isn't it? The second objection says, But he begat, and he has been begotten, can and must bring can and must bring the idea of a beginning of this process of generation. So he's saying not only is there change involved, but if you're going to say that the son is generated, you are implying a beginning. Uh, but we don't want to say that the son ever began because the son is God. And so uh, Gregory of Nazianzen says, why not instead say he has existed as begotten from the beginning? And so avoid your labored objections with their <laughs> penchant for ch for time. Uh, and in other words, what he's saying is, you know, these objections are taking up all of our time. And instead of, you know, quibbling with, with this, let's just say that this is an eternal begottenness, right? And then objection three reads, Father is a designation either of the substance or of the activity, is it not? And the answer that he gives is, Father designates neither the substance nor the activity, but the relationship the manner of being which holds good between the Father and the Son. And what he's saying there, of course, not having all of the scholastic categories that would show up later on, say, after the 13th century, but what Gregory of Nazianzen is doing there is he's saying that, you know, when we say Father, yeah, we're saying something of the divine essence, obviously. He's not saying that we're not. But what the term Father is meant to communicate is the way, a particular way in which the singular or numerically singular divine essence subsists. All right, and the, the, the singular, numerically singular divine essence subsists in three subsistences to follow the language of the uh, London Confession. Uh, chapter 2, Article 3, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at some Thomas Aquinas, why don't we? We're going to move from Thomas Aquinas to Francis Turretin to the Second London Confession. But Aquinas on this point, just want to bring this up uh, briefly, but Aquinas on this point says, answering objections, of course, uh, to, to this effect, he says, on the contrary, you know, in other words, he's saying, yeah, there is another procession other than the procession of the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Uh, per John 15, 26, and he is distinct from the Son, according to the words, I will ask my Father, and he will give you another paraclete, or another helper. John 14, 16, therefore in God another procession exists besides the procession of the word. And he goes on to extrapolate upon his answer. He says, I answer that, that there are two processions in God, the procession of the word and another, namely the procession of the Holy Spirit. In evidence whereof, we must observe that procession exists in God only according to an action which does not tend to anything external. This is not an external work of God or anything like that, but remains in the agent itself. Such an action in an intellectual nature is that of the intellect and of the will. Now, he's using the faculty psychology analogy here, which is actually very helpful. Uh, intellect has intellectual operation. A will loves. Okay, so look at what he's going to say. The procession of the word is by way of an intelligible operation. That's what the word is. 
he comes forth from the intellect. All right. The operation of the will within ourselves, again, he's looking at ourselves, he's making an analogy here, involves also another procession, that of love. So you have three, right? You have the intellect, uh, the intelligible operation, which is the word, and then an act of the will, which is love, whereby the object loved is in the lover, as by the conception of the word, the object spoken of or understood is in the intelligent agent. Hence, Besides the procession of the word of, in God, there exists in him another procession called the procession of love, by which Thomas means the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a common analogy to use uh, in order to you know, teach something of the eternal processions, and that is the, the faculty psychology uh, analogy, that the intellect uh, you know, uh, generates, you might say, uh, or, or what proceeds from the intellect is word, um, uh, and then, or wisdom, and then um, uh, will is had uh, between them, which is love, the, the, the act of love, of course. And so, uh, and so that's an analogy to kind of communicate to us how this is, is, is working in a, in a singular essence, uh, a, a simple essence. Um, let's go to Turretin. Turretin is uh, answering uh, the question, and of course I'm, I'm going to uh, blank on the question if I don't look at it in the book, but the question is, in the one divine essence, are there three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We affirm against the Socinians. Now, what he does is he begins by, by stating uh, the following. He says, Thus the singular numerical essence is communicated to the three persons, not as a species to individuals or a second substance to the first, because it is singular and undivided, nor as a whole to its parts, since it is infinite and impartable, but as a singular nature to its own act of being, suppositus, in which it takes on various modes of subsisting. Hence, it is evident, one, that the divine essence is principally distinguished from the persons in having communicability, while the persons are distinguished by an incommunicable property. Two, that it, that it differs from other singular natures in this, that while they can be communicated to only one self-existent being, supposito, and are terminated on only one subsistence, because they are infinite, the former, because infinite, can admit of more than one. Here we do not have a thing and a thing, but a thing and modes of the thing by which it is not compounded, but distinguished. Now, this is a very important statement. Uh, what, what Francis Turchin is saying here is that we don't have two things in the Godhead. There's only one thing. It's not as if the Son is a thing, or it's not as if the Father is a thing, the Son is a thing, and the Holy Spirit is a thing. They're not three different things in a thing. The divine essence is a thing, right? The divine essence is a single thing, right? And then what he says is this. It's a single thing uh, existing in distinct modes. So in other words, he's saying, here we do not have a thing and a thing, but a thing and modes of the, if I could insert a word, of the same thing by which it is not compounded but distinguished, okay? So again, God is not a composition of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are not three things in one thing, the divine essence, right? Sometimes in, in, in the God talk of modernity, you hear language that would seem to insinuate that the divine essence is like the fourth thing in the Trinity, that Father is a thing, Son is a thing, 
Holy Spirit is a thing, and that they are all of the same thing, the divine essence. And so what it sounds like is a quaternity. But what Turretin is saying here is that, no, it's actually one thing, one divine essence in distinct modes, modes that are eternally distinct by the orders of subsistence. He goes on, but the Orthodox hold to a modal, modal limb distinction because as the persons are constituted by personal properties, by personal properties, he means uh, unbegottenness, begottenness, inspiration, personal properties as incommunicable modes of subsisting, so they may properly be said to be distinguished by them. So personal properties would be, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father is Father in virtue of the fact that he begets the Son eternally. The Son is the Son in virtue of the fact that he is begotten eternally. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit in virtue of the fact that he is spirated eternally by both Father and Son. Now that we've looked at something of the kind of historical dogmatic formulation, uh, the, the historical literature, there's a lot more in Turretin, by the way. I, I feel like we're just not uh, doing him justice. Um, but for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and move on to kind of a more crystallized dogmatic formulation as it appears in the Second London Confession of Faith. And in the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 2, article 3, we read the following. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Uh, that is a terminological change from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which uses the word persons. Uh, the Second London uses the word subsistences. The Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity. So what are the three subsistences in this infinite being? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence. They're not part God, right? They are all God, yet the essence undivided. The essence isn't composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, it's, it's a relation uh, as the relation from thing to mode, right? And so it's, it's not a divided essence. It's an undivided essence. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So there you have your eternal processions. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are to be distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. And that's referring to... Um, the personal relations are, you know, uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, Father is Father, Son is Son, Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit. Relative properties being the Father begets the Son eternally, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit is eternally spirated by both Father and Son. That's what distinguishes the persons, nothing other. There's no subordination in the Trinity. There's no division of will or anything like that. It's these eternal relations of origin that distinguish, that distinguish the persons, these these peculiar relative properties and personal relations, and that's it. Which doctrine of the Trinity, the confession goes on to say, is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him? And amen it is. There is much more we could say on this doctrine. This is a starting point for you. A good resource is, you know, Retrieving Eternal Generation, edited by uh, Scott Swain and Fred Sanders. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Daniel Treyer gets into uh, Eternal Generation a little bit. Um, there are other books, you know, Adonis Vitti's book, uh, One God Who Works, the, uh, the Same God Who Works All Things, uh, is, of course, on inseparable operations, but he has to interact with Eternal Generation uh, at length. Um, you know, there's uh, Stephen Doobie, 
and uh, his uh, work on Christ. Uh, in fact, I, I, I think I have that book laying around here close somewhere. Um, but he wrote a book both on uh, divine simplicity and then did one rec- more recently on uh, the doctrine of Christ. So uh, just go search Stephen Doobie on Amazon and you'll find his work. Lots of good resources out there. Of course, I'm uh, using Turretin as well. Um, Richard Muller, uh, PRRD, you know, Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. Don't forget about that. That is also a worthwhile uh, volume um, if you can get your hands on it. Very difficult to get those four volumes at a reasonable price. Uh, If this was helpful for you, please subscribe to the channel. If you're watching on YouTube, click that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications and share it. If it helped you, maybe it'll help someone else. God bless you. See you next time.